This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Banking, industry, New York, uh, California, they are the targets in the United States to, to, uh, to destroy right now. Uh, uh, initially, people are leaving California and they're leaving New York to get away from the draconian measures. The same thing in other parts of the world. Australia is very hard hit. New Zealand is with these draconian measures. Britain is. Canada. Uh, and uh, I haven't heard much out of Africa until you, I, you and I got uh, connected here a little bit about the program. I had no idea, first of all, uh, about um, one of the most uh, uh, heroic and intelligent South Africans I've ever met, President Tom personally, and now I understand he's totally vilified by your countrymen. I can't believe they all think that way. I don't. I admire and respect the people of South Africa too much uh, to believe that. That's having said that, the media, I, I think, who's uh, certainly the media around the world, are captured by the pharmaceutical mm. industry, 70% of the media, the funding for the media in the United States comes from the drug industry. Yeah. You know, and that's probably true there and who knows what else, you know. So that was very, very disturbing to me, what you said about how your country is considering or treating a, pre a former President Tabo Mbeki. He's a great man of this world. Yeah. Well, before we talk about him, I mean, one of the reasons why you're sitting here on my show with me is because you worked with him. What is your, just for my audience who don't know who you are, what is your background and how did you end up working with Tav and Becky? Right. Uh, oh, my poor cat wants out again to be right with you. Hang on. Come on. Let's go. Let's go. Your, your audience might appreciate that, that I have a cat and it bugs me a little bit, but I love that. I love that little girl. Uh, I, uh, I, Lord, long history here. Um, I was a mainstream scientist uh, since the mid 1970s. Uh, I was I designed molecules. I'm a chemist, and I designed molecules mm. against certain enzymes to try to uh, protect or be used against tissue destroying diseases like arthritis, emphysema, parasites, cancer, that sort of thing. Mm. So I made these things. Uh, back in the 70s and the 80s, and I worked and collaborated with like rheumatologists, cancer researchers, uh, physicians, all sorts of those people who could use it. And I assumed that they knew their part. They got the biology right. And uh, like most people, most young scientists uh, do to, to this day, somebody comes to you, a chemist, they say, I've got a target over here. Can you make mm. me an inhibitor, a molecule for it? I say, sure, I can do it. I'm assuming that this target will be of clinical value in these diseases. I don't know that for a fact. I take their word for it. And then during the course of my life, uh, as it progressively, you know, as it progressed, I realized that these biologists didn't know what in the world they were talking about. It didn't make sense. And uh, what really, really w was the turning point in my life was the AIDS stuff. I had uh, I was hired uh, by Abbott Laboratories in 1978, uh, along with another PhD chemist, to set up the diagnostics division at Abbott Laboratories in North Chicago, Illinois, and we did that. And I didn't care for Abbott, a big, huge company. I left and went to California and started my own little biotech companies in, in San Francisco. Lo and behold, the year I got there, 2000, was when all this stuff was just coming out about this weird new thing that eventually we called it AIDS. 
But at the time, it was like a bed, gay-related immune deficiency and some other things. They changed it to AIDS so it wouldn't be uh, so pointed toward, towards uh, uh, gay men. And, um, and the CDC, actually I learned years later, had actually figured out where this Kaposi sarcoma and pneumonia, cytomegalovirus, all these weird diseases I'd never heard of at that point in my life, I know a lot about them now, uh, was only happening like in gay men. You know, so it's like my Andromeda strain, this alien bacterium that, that comes and dissolves plastic and turns your blood into powder and, kill, powder and kills people. It's a mm. movie and a book. And so we all, all of us uh, scientists uh, were eager to work on this, but we didn't know what to do. We'd have this little meeting once a month where the, 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 the academics, the industrial people, the little biotech, big pharmaceutical people would go to this uh, University of San Francisco mm. here in California. And once a month, we'd have a seminar, and then afterward, we'd go out to a Chinese restaurant. And that's really why we went, is to get to talk with each other, pick mm -hmm. up what's going on, form the occasional collaboration. And then we'd always talk about this AIDS stuff, because it was so fascinating. We didn't know anything about it. And then on April 23rd, 1984, AIDS officially became U.S. government policy on that day. And that day was when the Secretary of Health and Human Services held a press conference and brought out Robert Gallo of the National Cancer Institute and said that he had discovered the probable cause of AIDS. It was one of his viruses. And they dropped the word probable the very next day. He filed a few patents. And this is just one component of the immune system. The immune system mm -hmm. is at least as complex as the nervous system. And, and with AIDS, they were focusing on the T cells, the T helper cells. And there's so many other different kinds of cells, all different kinds of cells, and the B cells make the antibodies. And uh, these, the tests, the ELISA test, you may have heard of that, the antibody test mm. for HIV, mm. uh, the Western blot, the PCR test, about all that stuff. The thing about the antibody test was, is that they would take your blood with antibodies in it, and mix your blood with some of the proteins that they said were coming from HIV. I forget, a handful of proteins, eight or nine, something like that. And they would see if you had antibodies that would grab on to those proteins. And, and if they did, that was a positive reaction that said, aha, you've been exposed to HIV. That was the principle of it. You have antibodies in your body that react against these HIV proteins, which means you were exposed. It doesn't mean that you were infected, but it meant that you were exposed to it, uh, you know, at, at most. All right. The problem is, this is one thing, I, like I said, I was at Abbott Laboratories, the diagnostics division. I know a lot about the clinical diagnostics. And one thing is, you, you want to take the sample of blood almost as neat as you can get it, you know, concentrate as you can to analyze it for whatever's in there. Well, the test for the antibodies for HIV was you have to dilute the blood 400-fold, all right? You had to dilute it and, and before you did the antibody test. The reason was that every if you didn't dilute it, everybody on the planet said HIV positive. And my friend Roberto Geraldo, uh, when he was in New York and he was doing these HIV antibody tests, Western blots and the PCR, the ELISAs and all that stuff, um, he got a bunch of physicians to volunteer and donate their blood. He would take a sample, their blood sample, divide it into two portions. One, he would not dilute it. And the other one, he would dilute it 400-fold, like the instructions say. 
And all of the people that did not have the, the blood diluted, every one of those doctors was HIV positive. And the other tube of their blood that was diluted for 100 fold, every one of them was negative. All right. So, I mean, he, he published that even. But let me let me continue on this. Uh, it, it the, the thing is, is that you always have antibody reactions to everything, almost everything. It's just whether or not it's enough. It, it binds little, you know, a little or, or moderately or really, really tightly, mm. you see. And you will always have antibody reactions to proteins that you mix with your with your blood or, you know, with proteins that you mix with your blood. It's just a matter of degree. With those ELISA tests, it, they always turn reddish color, but it, they had a, a cutoff line. If its intensity is up here, it's positive. If it's still red, but it's below here, it's negative. It's totally arbitrary where you draw that line. And different labs drew that line in different places. Different countries had the line in different places. So the, the antibody test was, was, was meaningless. In fact, mm. this is how we won a lot of court cases. All we had to do for these court cases had to do with uh, HIV testing or anything with people uh, for commercial, uh, for uh, their jobs or for like if it was criminal charges or something. Most of the cases we won was just opening up the insert that comes with the test, have the judge read it or read it out loud to the jury. It says specifically in there, this test is not to be used to diagnose AIDS or, or, or the present presence of HIV or to confirm the presence of HIV. It says that right in there. The only way you can diagnose AIDS is, is by clinical symptoms, not by any test. That's for HIV. Every one of the HIV tests to this day says that. The viral load test says the same thing. Uh, it's because it, it, if you read other details in there, mm. one reason why they do it is they have no recognized reference standard. Guess what the reference standard is? The virus itself. They have no reference standard that they could compare those ELISA tests to, or the PCR test to, in, which in, was, in people from, which was from why human they were, samples. Which is why they were looking for antibodies. Yes, exactly. Why nobody has ever been able to observe uh, HIV in a person using electron microscope, the gold standard method of detecting viruses in people or animals, the electron microscope. David, with before be, don't 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 take the bait yet yet okay but okay <laughs> i can't help but see a very strong similarity to what you're saying and sars cov2 and covid and pcr testing yeah, yeah. it's HIV almost the it's almost HIV it's almost a copy and paste it was a trial run <laughs> HIV was a trial run. All right. So then what what was happening with drug users using needles and gay men having sex or sexually transmitted um, they got drug transmission? Diseases. They got drug diseases. In fact, one, and not only that, a lot of the guys that use IV drugs, uh, IV drugs on a regular basis, you know, they were also malnourished. They got a lot of the malnourishing diseases, the IV drug users guys. I mean, that's you, what it was. The CDC discovered this in 1982. They published it. They knew they knew what was going that what was going on with gay men as early as 1982. They knew it was a drug disease, but they dropped that in, on April 23, 1984, when it became government policy that AIDS was caused by a retrovirus, uh, sexually transmitted, and started in Africa. Just like that. And now, let me you you might want to know what was so special about that time. Yeah, monkeys or something. Well, 
Reagan was president. That was the end of his first term of president. It was an election year, 1984. And he, his administration had not said a single word about AIDS at that point. First four years of AIDS was the first four years of Reagan's administration. And they right. were, his people were afraid that the Democrats would make AIDS a campaign issue. Yes. So they nipped it in the bud. They totally uh, nipped it in the bud in April. It was in November was the election, but in April they come out, oh, we figured it out. We know what causes AIDS. And, and, and Margaret Heckler said in two years, we'll have a vaccine. So AIDS was not a campaign issue. That was his primary job at that time, was to, it was to keep the Democrats from making it a campaign issue. The problem was, once it became government policy, you, could, you couldn't change it. Now, and if you let it go on long enough, you can't admit it. Because if you, in fact, we, Peter Duisberg's got documentation of the government aware of what would happen and it's on Peter's website. It's in that article I think that I sent that I sent you. I think I sent it to you. The one about the tyranny of dogma. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, you can lay your hands on that. The yeah, government fantastic. knew knew that if this got out about AIDS not being what they said it was, no, but the, the whole credibility of government is shot. Would I be uh, permitted to publish the tyranny of dogma on my website? Sure, absolutely. It's totally. It, it, yeah, it's been translated into French too. Yeah, I kindly did that. Yeah. Uh, yeah all right, no, I will do all be of my that. Guess. Yeah, I'll... wherever you want to. Um, yeah, David. So hold on a second. I I, I just want to make sure that I'm following. <laughs> You've got to understand. If you can follow, if I spent thirty-five years of my life <laughs> on this stuff, I know. Are how you say, so, so hang on. <laughs> so you're saying that HIV exists only only in a laboratory and. As such, AIDS therefore doesn't exist. No, AIDS does. Acquired immune deficiency syndrome with the small letters exists. Right. You know, malnutrition is the world's leading cause of acquired so, immune deficiency. When but you AIDS at, with the capital letters does not exist. So when you look at the CDC's website and all these all these data points on the internet, when they say the leading cause yeah. of death in Africa was uh, yeah. AIDS and then TB, what, what do they mean by that? Well, you see, people do die of TB. I don't dispute that. Right. But guess what? No, you but know? the AIDS, the AIDS, the AIDS deaths. Yeah, I what know. What does that mean? It, it, remember, if you die of TB in Africa now, that's AIDS-defining. Since, since the Bangui definition, I think it was 1989, TB is an AIDS-defining disease. You can no longer die of TB. It's AIDS <laughs> in Africa. But our stats still show TB deaths and AIDS deaths. I know, I know, I know that they can't. I I, I know that that you you know the numbers that 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 Peter and I really use, the one thing you can't screw around with are bodies. You know, you got a dead body there. You got a dead body there, regardless if it's a bullet, mm. a virus, or whatever it is. So when you go back and you look year to year, and you 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 look at overall mortality is what we did and published this, you know, there is nothing unusual or exceptional for decades in Africa, in South Africa, the South African data. We've published that. You can lay your hands on it. I, can even, I think I have a PDF. I can even send you a PDF copy of that. But what We got the, this data from South Africa. Yeah. But then what does the government mean when it, when it publishes AIDS deaths alongside yeah. TB deaths? What, what's they're, going they're, on there? Basically lying basically lying 
you know. Is that the reason why AIDS is never put on the death certificates? Well, I didn't know that. As, as far as I know, it's not it's not put onto the death certificate. It's normally something else. Um, I stand to be corrected on this one, and I'm happy to if someone in my audience can correct me on that. But as far as I know, AIDS is not uh, put down as the primary it cause of death. It ought not to be put on there because uh, there is no such thing as AIDS with a capital letters because AIDS with a capital letters is people's minds. It's a contagious disease sexually transmitted caused by a retrovirus, HIV. That does not exist. Those AIDS-defining diseases, you know, that people die of, fever, diarrhea, persistent cough, weight loss, and TB in Africa, they, yeah, they die of those things. It's okay, so, so for, the, for the purposes of all the people in the comments who are wanting clarity, AIDS is essentially just a collection of... of problems um which is yeah. not it's not consistent uh based that's on right. where in the world you are so in, in other words in the united states that's right aids is different to aids in africa and in canada in the united states we had different definitions canada didn't accept all the u.s aids defining diseases so we did, we didn't have the same aids in canada in the united states <laughs> do you do you realize it's it, 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 now, now do you understand okay for the people, for your audience, all right? If what I'm saying is true, let's say it really is true and people started accepting it as true. I personally know it is true, but I'm just talking about the, what would happen if the people in general, large numbers of people started knowing what I know. I don't use the word belief. Belief is something that you take to be true in the absence of evidence. I know the evidence. I have the evidence, so I know that there is no such thing as AIDS with capital letters, all right? But people do die and stuff. What if the other people, or if people just in large numbers started asking questions of government? That's all you have to do. That's dangerous to ask questions of, of these people, you know? That the whole governments could topple, absolutely topple because they cannot defend their position. Why do you think they had to take Tabo and Becky down? Because he was going against the position of the of the popular ANC narrative. Of the United States government. Of the United That's States, why. wow, all right. It wouldn't be the first government the United States has taken down. <laughs> They've so you, been, the, the, C, the CIA has been taking down governments around the world my whole life. And this is acknowledged. I mean, it's no mystery there. Now they're, they're doing it in my own country. Just... I mean, I'm just looking at the time quickly, and this conversation's fascinating. Please, can you can you hang around for for longer? Sure, sure. Take um, a little break. No, 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 no. We can't we can't take a break. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, I just want to sip my water. <laughs> oh no, you can do that. Um, what I want to what I want to ask you then, David, is just on a personal level. Then you worked with Tom and Becky. What was he like? Did he genuinely also question the link then between HIV and AIDS? Yes. One thing for sure I can tell you is that when it started, he didn't know. He didn't know. He honestly wanted to find out. And he, you, all you got to do is read his own words. That, that article that I sent you, those are his own words. I quoted his very words that you can lay your hands on about... The, he pointed out 
the difference between the definition of AIDS in Africa is completely different from the United States and Europe. You know, a reasonable person will go, well, how can that be? Because, uh, you know, the measles or the measles or the measles or the measles or the chickenpox or chickenpox or whatever, you know, no matter what part of the world, you could be on the moon and it's still the same symptoms. But when it came to AIDS, it was totally different depending on where you were. And that didn't make sense to him. He was a reasonable man and he wanted that somebody to explain that to him. And then he wanted to bring the world's best people on this subject together, you know, and discuss it and debate it and figure it out. And he also said, based on apartheid and all that, what they went through and the fact that how they were lied to and weren't allowed to discuss things in public, uh, you know, he wanted an open debate, an open discussion or, or something that was so crucial to his country that supposedly his population was just going to start dropping like flies you know, because of this weird thing called AIDS. So he took it seriously, you know, and, and, and then wanted to, to have this open discussion. And then over time, over time, he realized it was a pile of crap, as any reasonable person would once you start looking into it and taking the time to ask questions and look at the data, you realize it's a pile of crap. In fact, it's a crime, what's, what's going on and what has gone on. Now, once you know that, all right, that's a huge thing. That's a threat. Matter of fact, let me tell you this. It's also in that article that I gave you, when the carrot and the stick thing about the uh, Clinton with Tabo and Becky. The uh, the stick was that right before, right after and Becky was going to have this panel, right after it was announced, before it actually happened, uh, Clinton declared AIDS a threat to the national security states. Guess what that does? That brings in the, 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 the CIA, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It's treating it like, like a military emergency. You bring in all this kind of money and everything. It's a national, it's a, a, a security threat to the United States. All right? COVID. So you're bringing all this stuff. In fact, I actually met, ran into a CIA agent, a CIA agent there, Elliot Small. I wasn't the only one. He was this uh, uh, attractive young black American you know, ingratiated himself with us dissidents, you know, and nobody had ever heard of Elliot Small before that day and mm. never heard of him since. And then, and then I only learned later after I was living in South Africa, my friend Sam said the government found out that he was a CIA agent. I said, that makes sense. <laughs> Are you saying that Tarvin Becky deserves an apology? He deserves to be lifted up on people's shoulders. He, he deserves to be president again of South Africa, and in my opinion. Is, is this why he didn't want to push on with the ARV rollout, which Jacob Absolutely. Zuma then did? Yeah, I know. I mean, Zuma was a, was a uh, guy, well, you know more about Zuma than I do, but mm. he was not a very decent person and not, he was a horrible president. There's, yeah. There's, just put well, but tell me about ARVs. He was in it for himself. Yes, well, that's true. But tell me then a little bit ARV, uh, about ARVs. What are they and why then um, are they considered dangerous in your words? <laughs> ARVs? Well, AZT was the first one. Do mm. you remember AZ AZT? Yes. All right. That was invented, I think, back in the 60s as an anti-cancer drug. I forget the guy's name now. I don't remember the ex all those exact details of so many decades ago. 
but it was decided it was too toxic to be used to treat cancer. <laughs> so they, they didn't develop it for anything. It wasn't even patented or anything. All right. So with this AIDS stuff going on, they pull all these things off the shelf and try anything they could in the cell culture with, with, uh, with Robert Gallo's virus. The only place it remember exists is in the laboratory. So they could try this virus in the laboratory and, and try all these poisons, toxic drugs, and they tried AZT among others, and it, it's a poison. Lo and behold, it's, it poisons that the whole process of cell culture with, with this AZT, with the HIV growing in it. And they improved it really, really fast. With, they had to stop the clinical trials before they killed too many people. And they, they released it really early. Uh, Anthony Fauci, that you know, he was started at the uh, National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in 1984. When all this crap started, he was behind this and, and pushed this AZT, AZT. And it was killing, like I said, a generation of gay men in the, in the 80s and, and early 90s. It was a chemotherapy that was too toxic to give cancer patients. But they gave it to these gay, these HIV positive gay men. You say, think of that. Uh, the, a government and a man like Anthony Fauci would do that. And that's the same guy that we've got uh, with this COVID nonsense, pushing mm. these vaccines and everything, which are going to kill millions of people, hundreds of millions of people, you know, if, if they're allowed to, to put, put those things out there. The same guy that gave us AZT is pushing these vaccines that he has a financial interest in. All right. It's let me incredible. Not, I know. Let, it's incredible. Yeah. Let, me not, let me not comment on that and ask you another question that I've got here. Okay. How, old, how old is HIV? How old is it? Well, HIV, uh, I guess it goes back to 1984. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that that was its birth. It wasn't called that. It was called uh, it was called HTLV three. Robert Gallo called it HTLV three for human T cell leukemia virus. He he discovered the HTLV one, HBL two. He always he tried to make those responsible for this disease, leukemia or that. Didn't ever work. So he finally comes up with HTLV three, which now we call HIV. You know. And as I said, we have 10% and it's a retrovirus and 10% of our DNA is, is retroviruses so, and, and they don't do anything. They're totally so harmless. Have retroviruses been with humans for a long time? Probably forever. <laughs> okay. They're probably, they were probably here, uh, no doubt about it, these. They were here long before humans. And They're how, in mammals. They're in mammals too. How does HIV differ from other retroviruses? No way. They all have the same three genes, the gag, the pal, the end, that Peter Duesberg discovered. That, that's how they're able to detect them in your genome. Now, they're not functional. It's just, it's, it's just like you look at a cemetery. This is old debris that's left for eons. It just stays in our, in our DNA from eon to eon. They can come back. These things can be rearranged. And they, you, you know, I mean, they're these jumping genes that can move around that, that Barbara McClintock was talking about won the Nobel Prize for David you're gonna to have to come back because there's so much <laughs> there's so much more to talk about there's a lot that we haven't even covered we've only I know we've only touched the that. iceberg of of AIDS but that was the over sorry I just bumped my microphone um, that was the overarching 
talking point here. There are quite a number. It's of a preparation. It's a good. It's a good foundation. There's an, I've got a number stuff. of questions here from from okay. audience members. Can I read you a couple? I know that sure. this, it, might, it might jump sure. around, and I apologize for that. But here we go. That's okay. Um, all right. When 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 you when do you become infectious to other people after being exposed to HIV? A certain level of HIV load, or once you've developed AIDS, can you spread HIV without AIDS? No. Hey. AIDS is not contagious, not transmissible, and you cannot. There's no HIV to transmit. You, I hope you realize that you're blowing people's minds right now. <laughs> well, if they're not, I'm not doing my job because I, I've been I've been working on this for 35 years of my life. I'm right. 72 years old, and, right. and I'm being blunt. I'm not going to beat around the bush. Uh, you know, that's okay. that's why President Tabo and Becky invited me to be on his AIDS panel. Right. So I'm I'm not, I'm not going to him and haw. Well, based based on your answer there, it it renders a bunch of these questions redundant. But yes, one that's somewhat uh-huh. relevant. Um, mm-hmm. h- how does an HIV virus test work, and what is it that they're picking up? Now we did touch on that earlier. Yeah. Okay. Let's. Let, we already talked about the antibodies. All right. Yes. Uh, let, let's talk. Let's talk about the uh, the PCR, the viral load, so-called viral load. All right, viral load is a very useful concept. At least it used to be. It's, to, it's totally demolished now. Yeah. Viral load was. It, it's a quantitative measure of how much virus there is. Let's say in a in a milliliter of right. your blood or something like that. Okay. It's a quantitative measure, and and it, so. It was really easy and straightforward when you were using real things, like you were uh, uh, real viruses and things that you could see with an electron microscope. You can see them, you can count them, you know, in a mm. particular volume of stuff. You could come up with a real number, a real viral load. How many viral particles per milliliter? Might be a million, it might, might be a billion or something like that, you know, or, or in your lung tissue or wherever the virus was hanging out, you know, and replicating. And then you count it and get a real solid bona fide number of these things. You could also, if they were culturable, if you could grow them in cell culture, you could take a sample from the tissue, your lung tissue or something, and then you could infect cells in culture. And then they replicate there for a while, and then you can get lots of these little viral particles that you can work with and and Mm -hmm. make vaccines against, study, learn about their genes and things like that, whatever you want to do. And you can, again, look at them with electron microscope. You can see them. Yeah, they're the same, exactly the same things I see in their lung or wherever it was, you know. Okay, that's good. Now, in the 90s, another precedent that AIDS set was this PCR viral load nonsense. PCR, polymerase chain reaction, is like a a molecular photocopying machine. You can take even a single molecule of RNA or DNA have to turn the RNA into DNA for this to work. PCR, polymerase chain reaction. And you, you can keep doubling it. Like you'll have two, you have one, then you have two, then you have four, then you have eight and 16. And it just goes up very, very fast. You can make billions and trillions of copies of this segments of RNA or DNA. It's like a photocopy machine. But it only tells you or makes for you these copies of this nucleic acid. But it doesn't tell you that it's a virus. It's like taking a, a, a sentence out of a book 
you know, mm. and then make a million, million copies of, of the sentence or some words out of a book, you know, and, and then try and trying to uh, decipher was it a Shakespeare play or was it Declaration of Independence or whatever, you know, uh, it, 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 or, or a bunch of bricks uh, that you have all these bricks and you're trying right. to decipher from that pile of bricks what the structure of the demolished building used to look like, you know, that's PCR. Which is also, also the basis of this entire COVID nonsense. Yes. And, and, P, and, and HIV set the precedent. All viral things, the MERS, the SARS, the, the uh, H1N1, all these other ones, HIV set that precedent where they use that instead of really finding viruses, they just look for small segments, about 1%, about 1% of the nucleic acids uh, of the virus that they're amplifying it up. It, it doesn't even have to be, the. you don't even know it's coming from a virus. It might be from a virus. It could be from you. They cross over a lot. It could be mm -hmm. from a bacterium. You don't know where these little segments of this RNA is coming from. One thing for a fact, you know you're not counting viruses. There's, You know they're not. You know, it's not a virus. It's just a segment of, of genetic material. You're looking for right, fragments. So, it's fragments, little tiny fragments, mm. about 1%, about 1% of, of the virus gene, when the virus genome and the virus genome is small to begin with. So they started using this stuff because they couldn't see HIV with an electron microscope. They could not find it in any human being. So they had to come up with another way to, to test for it, in quotes. So they started looking for the nucleic acid for a retrovirus. Remember, 10% of our genes have retrovirus DNA in it. 10% of our, not gene, 10% of our DNA has retroviral sequences in it. So if you look for little segments of RNA for retroviruses, you're going to find them. You're going to find them. Chickens, or, 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 I don't know about chickens, mice, humans, uh, you will find it if you look hard enough for it. But that doesn't mean there's any virus there, you know? And, they, and remember I said that the inserts that come with the HIV viral load test, it says you cannot use this to diagnose AIDS, HIV, or, or confirm the presence of HIV. They don't have a reference standard. They've never been able to compare it with authentic virus. Mm. So, but yet they got away with it. When they tried to do it, they actually tried to do it with electron microscopy and things, and they couldn't, they could not sh compare electron microscopy or even cell culture for that matter with these high viral loads that are going all over the place. Uh, I've published on that, other people have published on that. It was totally bogus, but it became uh, policy. Again, government policy that this viral load test ha means viral load. It does not. There is no such thing as a PCR test for a virus or any infectious agent. People claim it, they do it, but they have never been compared with the thing itself. I'll tell you something interesting. I, um, I've got a few gay friends, and I asked a very good gay friend of mine a couple of days ago. I, I, I asked him if he has ever met a gay person with AIDS, and his answer was no. Yeah, and I, and I found that true. Yeah, I found it the, interesting. The, the gay guy in the United States, the, the, the gay guys actually understood what was going on before other people. Back in the mid to late 80s, they realized, like the, like the uh, CDC did in 82, that the AIDS was a drug disease. So all on their own, these gay guys in the community, certainly in San Francisco, where, where I live, they on their own had these 
campaigns to talk to the other gay guys and tell them to stop taking these poppers and things, to cut that out and get off all these other, other drugs. And sure enough, they started doing it. They started doing it. They were getting better. AIDS was going away in the gay community before this crap was happening all because of the behavior that the gay men chose to stop using drugs in such droves. And in a generation there, AIDS went down in the gay guys. I mean, with symptoms. I'm talking about symptoms. I'm not mm. talking about positive antibody tests and all right. that, which are bogus anyway. And then when there was a new generation of gay men coming up in the 90s, mid-90s, a little bit later, then guess what? They started using drugs again. Guess what? Some of the AIDS-defining diseases start popping back up in the next generation of gay guys. Second half of the 90s. Not so, nearly like it was in the 70s and 80s, though. So if, I'm, if I've got flu, right, and I go to the doctor and the doctor checks my symptoms and, you know, and there's a diagnosis, you know, everything seems to match up with what the doctor believes to be sort of flu-like symptoms and gives me medication, et cetera, et cetera, right? Now, yeah. that cannot happen for somebody with AIDS. They need to do some sort of test, right? They, they, you, can't, you can't look at someone and go, well, you've got AIDS symptoms. They used to, you know, before they had the PCR test. You right. know, back, they had all those AIDS-defining diseases, and every few years they would—they never took AIDS-defining disease away. They just keep adding new ones to it. And these diseases have nothing to cervical cancer. Women were not getting AIDS, so they had to add cervical cancer on there. You know, I remember when that happened in the '90s, so that so that they could up because look at it this way. How, again, how does that virus know if you're male or female? Get your straight. They had to get more women with AIDS. <laughs> so they added cervical cancer. Still, though, to this day, I think 90% are, are, are men in the United States. And the, the gay guys. Because, you see, the, as the, it was almost like a religion. The gay guys were the ones that now uh, uh, think about just their community. They go out and they get tested. Mm, and, and they the use PrEP. The world they use PrEP. They used that too, and and of course the drug companies and the and the CDC and other people. Oh, those are horrible. The, the pre-exposure, they have the post-exposure prophylaxis. They mm. have the pre-exposure. The pre-exposure is to take people who are not even HIV positive by their stupid little tests, and they want to make sure they don't become HIV positive. So now they give healthy people these toxic drugs. That's a crime, in my opinion. How do you? Okay, so let's come in for a little bit of a landing here because. I'm going to have to get you on for round two, uh, without a doubt. I hope, <laughs> hope you don't mind. But No, I don't. How do you even begin, David? How do you even begin to fight back or push back? I don't even... Is it a, is it a losing battle? Is it a lost battle? Uh, no battle's lost until it's lost. <laughs> the, um, we are here today, as we speak, the world, with this COVID crap. Because we lost the battle with AIDS, exposing it. Tabo and Becky tried. We dissidents tried. All over the world, we tried, and we're going against interests that have trillions of dollars at their disposal, at their command. Not just the drug companies, they're just part of it, but then there's all these other very, very powerful trillions of dollars is what's keeping all this stuff going is what's fighting what what's buying politicians what's uh bribing them blackmailing them uh, all the way down the municipal level this has been going on for decades and yeah the media the media is bought that you can't you get 
ripped off of YouTube or someplace like that or Facebook or something if you start doing this. I mean, all these places are bought right now. And we, if, had we succeeded to exposing these HIV nonsense and the AIDS nonsense, we would not be where we are today. We are where we are today because we fail, you know. But that, but now we've got the whole world to fight back, and we have to educate the have to educate the world. But guess why there's pulling you off the YouTube or whatever is to keep people from finding out stuff. If we if we were full of crap and didn't know what we were talking about, didn't have the evidence, then it would be obvious to everybody. Let us talk. Let us. Convince everybody how stupid and crazy we are. Let me play the devil's advocate. They won't let us talk is they're afraid of us. Yeah, let me let me play devil's advocate for a second. Right. So I'm not a scientist, so I have no way of of uh, trying to uh, refute what you're saying. Can another scientist attempt to refute your claims? Who? Tabo and Becky asked them to. They wouldn't try it. They wouldn't do it. Peter Duisberg did. He tried to get debates. I've I've. Listen, I'm a scientist. Scientists love to talk, as Ari said. They no, love I mean, to in, shine and show off and yeah. be smarter than the other person. They love to win the debate. This is the thing that, that was stupid. Well, I pointed out with what that AIDS of Peggy, and Becky's AIDS panel, the mainstream, that if they were right, if, if we were a bunch of nuts, and if we had African blood dripping from our fingers, as they said, and we were such horrible human beings, we were equivalent to Nazis or something like that. We were so horrible. Then they were morally and duty bound to expose us in public. They had, they, Becky gave them the great opportunity to put it on live television and stuff like this. They could have made their case in front of the world that they mm. are right and we are wrong and we are a bunch of nuts. And they, decide, they said, no, no TV, no presentations. We will zip our mouths. We will not participate. Now, does that sound like somebody that, that is confident in their position? No. And the journalists, most of the journalists that were covering this thing, that they were talking to us and the other people, and they were not, the AIDS was not their beat. So they hadn't already been bought. They mm. were just still normal people with normal minds that could look and evaluate things. And they realized there was a huge difference between the dissidents and the mainstream. The mainstream would not talk to them. Remember what I said about the scientists wouldn't talk to me as a scientist? Mm. Yeah, so the mainstream wouldn't, you know? And so they, and we would. And, and you would, it would have been their duty. It would have been the mainstream's duty yes. to expose us there. And they can, didn't do it. What, what, you, how does a normal person, if you, if you were in a courtroom and you had one side, mm. you had prosecute, prosecutors in the defense, and only one side would talk, how would you, what, what would you think of that as a jury, you know, a, a juror? But can your, can your, can your scientific... Has no confidence in their place? Yes, but sorry, David, can, can your scientific claims be falsified? I mean, in the laboratory? Sure, we've asked them. Nobody's tried. <laughs> it's fair. Sure. You know, you, uh, the, the main thing, they never, Tabo and Becky, gave the mainstream an opportunity to show off, show their mm. brilliance, blow us away. If we were such lunatics and crazy and didn't have any arguments, they should have been able to expose us in 5, 10, 20 minutes. Wouldn't you think so? Mm. You know? But they didn't even try. 
You, I tell you, I'm so glad you called me and we're doing this. I urge the people in South Africa to to ask their government, and if the and if that doesn't work, demand their government to release those videos of Mbeki's AIDS advisory panel. I, I think I think you and I are going to be seeing a lot more of each other over the coming months because this is an incredibly interesting and very relevant conversation in a it's weird i didn't think it would be as relevant as it is now but you could have you could have swapped the word hiv with SARS-CoV-2 for COVID <laughs> this this entire conversation could have been about covid it's it's incredible how the similarities um are are there that's why i and my colleagues who've been doing this some longer than I have, you know, so, as soon as we saw what was going on with COVID, we immediately knew what it was, immediately. We got together in February all over the world, come together, we're still together now, we're putting things together, we have a big event here, early part of February, a Zoom thing for the world and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and um, we knew it, man, and we got it, and we said, boy, this is all over again, uh, same, same thing. And same people, Anthony <laughs> Fauci, you know. So uh, it, it, it's, it is, Hollywood could not come up with a script like this. Look, we have to go, but I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to end the conversation with a cliffhanger, <laughs> which is, All right. which, which means that you have to come back. But I've got All this right. question that's popped up a number of times um, in the, in the comments and uh they're they're asking. <laughs> Am I saying? <laughs> does does SARS CoV two exist? Nobody's demonstrated it. I can tell you that for a fact. Even the CDC this past December first said, and I can quote someplace. It's like they do not have uh, quantifiable uh, levels of this. Of uh, it's only three words anyway. They don't have it to com to test against the PCR test. They don't have the virus. Our Centers for Disease Control does not have that virus. Pfizer does not have that virus. And some of their inserts, not the inserts that come with it, but some of their documentation, they don't have the actual virus to uh, compare with the vaccine. So they had to use a synthetic, they had to use a synthetic gene for for this thing. Nobody, all of the things in Wu, in fact, the thing I'm doing, did earlier today, I'm gonna be doing for this thing in a couple of weeks, is all the data from the original published data from China and, and Australia and other places. Uh, this is this is a cliffhanger for the next time too. This whole thing got started with a single patient in China, a single man, 41-year-old man that had pneumonia, no controls, no healthy people that compared it with. They tested him for two viruses and a bacterium, and then they did this whole huge fancy thing on taking out all this RNA stuff and everything and then they come up with a virus in in a week and claim that it's the cause of these 44 pneumonias in a country that has over a million pneumonias every year you know what's so special about these 44 and that got the ball rolling and they didn't have the virus they didn't even have the virus they used this fancy fancy technique where they just got all the RNA out of this lung sample all of it and then they had all these little pieces and they had a computer to sort of stitch them together the sequences, the ATCs and U's, uh, a, the, the nucleotides for the RNA, they had to 
and then they had the computer stitch them all together, and then they came up with the consensus sequence that said, this sequence of RNA is for, you guessed it, a cold virus, a coronavirus. You know, that's all it is. Coronavirus is a cold virus. And they didn't even have the virus. They just stitched together these nucleic acids, and they sent those that sequence of RNA to the countries around the world to make PCR tests. And the CDC admits that they don't have the virus. Pfizer admits they don't have the virus. The virus is not anywhere except in a computer. All right. I did say that we'll leave that as a cliffhanger. But let me just tell you right now, I'm not going to sleep tonight. I have to go and probably watch a cartoon on TV because my, my brain is broken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I've got 35 years of that in my head, man. <laughs> if you enjoyed this podcast please visit supportgerm.com